0: Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, again, we uh, come to you acknowledging uh, that we on our own uh, do not have the capacity um, to hear what you are saying to us. Uh, We are naturally distracted, Uh, we can be um, just unaware of the truths that you are speaking about, and so. Again, we ask in this moment, as we are here as your people, that your spirit would be present. Helping me uh, to speak clearly and faithfully to your word. Helping us to hear that we may see Jesus and be made more like him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I'd like to consider with you um, Jesus' miracles. I'm going to, by the way, my kids have already told me I say miracles strangely. Sometimes I say it right, sometimes it's wrong. Right. So you'll just have to be okay with me saying miracles sometimes. But that's what I want to be talking about this morning. And uh, if it were 40 years ago, I actually think uh, maybe I would have to say something else at the very outset because it was common for people to have to to kind of help people who are uncertain believe that, yes, Jesus really did these things. There was kind of this general belief that maybe Jesus was a good teacher, but it's really hard to believe that he is a miracle worker. And that's actually changed, I think, over the last couple of decades. There has been kind of a growing acceptance that while science is important, there are certain things that science just cannot tell us about, meaning people are more open to this. And I think there's an increased awareness that these gospel accounts written just 30 or 40 years after they took place so in other words people were still around who remembered what happened these gospel accounts that give us details like names and places these are careful telling things to the best of their abilities as they happened and so i think there's a greater acceptance today than maybe even a few decades ago of the idea that Jesus wasn't just a political leader, he wasn't just someone who died, he wasn't just someone who, who taught important things, but that he was someone who performed countless miracles. And I wonder if you've ever thought about that. Because if you think about it, there's not really another historical figure that we can say this of. Certainly not, you know, Julius Caesar or Socrates. There was never claims made about them in that way. Not Confucius or Buddha. Not. Not even Old Testament figures, if you think about even Moses and Elijah, two people who did have miracles associated with them, they did not do it in the same way or with the same frequency. Jesus is unique in all of history as someone who does these miracles upon miracles. And so this morning, we now come as we are working through Matthew, this guide to being apprentices to Jesus, we come to the first time that Matthew really kind of opens our eyes to see what it looked like when Jesus was doing this. And so I'd like for us just to kind of take a moment and look and see and then ask, what what is this about? What is Jesus doing? Why is Jesus' ministry so filled with these miracles? So let's first just kind of consider the three that we encountered. Three, I think, carefully selected miracles that that, that Matthew kind of introduces Jesus' ministry with in this fashion. The first one comes, I mean, you might remember the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and as he's kind of stepping down the mountain, almost immediately after, this, this man with leprosy comes to him. Now, have you ever um, been in a situation where you realize there is an in-group, and you, you don't think you are a part of it? Probably I'm describing adolescence for like the majority of us. The sense of not really belonging to a group. Maybe sometimes even now we feel this way that there's a group of people who belong and then there's us. And we wonder, maybe that's true of us. And and this man that we begin with in our story didn't wonder he knew that he didn't belong because he's a leper. Leprosy in the Bible is a more generic term. It's not talking about one specific disease. It's referred to kind of a, a group of serious skin diseases, almost always unpleasant, whether it was with lesions or boils or ongoing open wounds and all sorts of unpleasant things. And the thing that's important for us to know is that if you were diagnosed with leprosy, you were considered unclean. You bore in your body this ongoing sign of the brokenness of this world, of the curse of God, and people could not come in contact with you. If they did, they would be considered unclean as well. And so if you were diagnosed with leprosy, you had to remove yourself from the town, live outside of the town on your own, and whenever someone came close, you were supposed to cover your mouth and just say, unclean, unclean, so that no one would come near to you. Can you imagine the shame that would have been associated with that? Now, we don't know much about the backstory of this man, we don't know how long he has had this disease, when it happened, when he started recognizing something was going on with his skin, and he hoped that it wasn't what it looked like, and then how long since he's been praying for it to be taken away, but what we do know is at this moment, he has come to Jesus. Undoubtedly, he has either heard about what Jesus has been doing, or maybe he's even seen some of what Jesus has done, and he he knows that Jesus is gifted. And so he comes to Jesus and it says, he kneels, literally he prostrates himself down, knees on the ground, face to the ground, and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now now think about what he's saying, if you are willing. He knows that Jesus is capable, he has seen it, he knows that Jesus heals others. But he is not convinced that Jesus will heal him. Because no one wants to have anything to do with him. So why would Jesus? And you can just imagine this moment of extreme vulnerability when he is just on the ground, having said that with his hopes and fears all in that moment. And you can just imagine The absolute shock he would have experienced as he felt for the first time in who knows how long someone's hand upon him. And he lifts his head up and he hears Jesus say, I am willing, be clean. And in that moment, he looks at his hands and suddenly they're as clear as a baby's skin and he is new. And, and Jesus doesn't just go that far, but then he goes even beyond that and he says, now go to the priest and show him. And the reason Jesus is doing it is because he's not just restoring his skin, he's restoring him back to his family, back to home. As he goes to the priest, he is now once again included. Jesus has made things right. So then, as Jesus continues, we see the second miracle as he is entering into Capernaum. Uh, the, the town, he's, he's eventually moving towards Peter's house, and right now he's just entering in the town, and again, another person comes to him. This one is actually a very different figure. We're told that it is a centurion who comes to him and says, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. centurion, I mean, probably in your mind you're already maybe thinking of it because we've seen the image of the centurion with a plumed helmet and the the heavy armor. He was a man of power. And he was a man also who for the people in Capernaum would have symbolized the ongoing foreign rule. Perhaps the best analog I can think of is if you were in France in the early 1940s occupied by Nazis, and and maybe if you were in a town, there was probably a captain who who held camp there, and he was the one who was making sure your town stayed in order and obedience to Nazi Germany. That's what the centurion would have been to the people living in Capernaum. He had control over nearly a hundred soldiers. He was the boss. He was powerful. He was respected. And probably feared, but likely not loved. And, and what seems to be the case is that this centurion, as he has been living here, has, has developed a, a bond, a connection with his servants. It's not surprising, I suppose, his family, if he has any family, would not have been with him. This, this servant was his closest thing to family. The, the time shared, the conversations, the things done together, they've become friends, and what we can deduce is at some point, something happened to the servant. Maybe it was a stroke. Maybe he fell and broke his neck. Whatever it is, is now he is bedridden in agony, paralyzed, and dying. And you can only imagine this centurion sitting by the bed, who is normally so powerful, realizing how utterly helpless He is. No doctor can fix this. None of his many soldiers can come and do something about it. He can do nothing. And as he is feeling this helpless, as he goes through his mind, he remembers maybe something he's heard or maybe something he has seen about Jesus. And so he turns to Jesus. And he says to him, Lord, my servant is in bed, paralyzed, suffering terribly. And it's interesting, because Jesus here, in response, kind of slows, slows the movement of this down by asking a question, shall I come and heal him? And, and the Greek implies, kind of, like, are you looking to me to heal him? And I think what Jesus is doing is he's trying to assess the posture that this centurion is coming. Is the centurion, this, you know, mighty, essentially Nazi military captain coming and expecting this lowly Jew to do what he asks? And the answer is no, that's not actually how this man is coming. Notice how he responds after Jesus asks. The centurion replied, Lord. Now just think about that already, Lord. Or sometimes it can be translated, sir. This is this is an attitude of deference. Treating this, this mighty centurion soldier is treating a Jewish carpenter as his superior in this moment. Lord, he says. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. I am not worthy of you. He he understands the actual relationship that they have. He says, "Jesus, I understand that that I'm not even part of your people." That I really have no status before you. I can't make any claim as being a fellow countryman. And probably the centurion even realizes that being a Gentile, Jesus was not even supposed to enter into his house. He realizes that he has zero standing before Jesus. And yet, what else does he say? He says, Yet, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell the one, go, when he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. In other words, he's saying, I know what it's like to have to do what someone says. And I know the power of my word that when I speak, other people have to do what I say. And I understand authority, and you have it. And if you just say, be healed, it will happen. In essence, this centurion is saying exactly the same thing as the leper. He is saying, if you are willing, you can heal my friend. And Jesus in that moment sees. He he doesn't just see the, the strange dynamic between this Jew and this Roman centurion. He sees a man who has come helplessly with faith. And he says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. He speaks of the day when there's going to be a great feast. And he says, it's people like this who will join this feast. And then after, here's what he says. He says, go. Go, and it will be done for your servants just like you asked. And can you imagine the, the moment that the centurion sees his servant, his friend, not in bed, but but standing smiling the joy they must have felt as this friendship is restored as Jesus makes things new so there's one more miracle that we see here and this in some ways is the subtlest of the three as Jesus continues he finally enters into Peter's house and it says that as he's in Peter's house he sees Peter's mother-in-law in bed with a fever and the fact that she's in bed is actually quite significant, because in that day, hospitality was sacred. If you had a guest, you would treat them with great honor. And so the fact that Peter's mother-in-law was not getting up to help Jesus means that she was laid low. I mean, have you ever been like that, a fever where you just, you can't pay attention to anything, you can't get up, no amount of Tylenol seems to do anything about it, you just, you just feel like you are about to die. And the fact is, that might actually have been the case for Peter's mother-in-law. Most of the time when there's fevers, it was something like malaria or pneumonia. It was scary. And there is a, a quietness that strikes me about this miracle. There are no words. This woman is so weak, so unable to do anything. She can't even so much as ask Jesus for help. And Jesus doesn't even say anything. He just sees her and sees her need and takes her hand. And in that moment, it says the fever leaves her. It's not just the fever breaks. It's not like suddenly things are going to be a little bit okay. The fever leaves her. It's like she's never had the fever. She suddenly has energy. And it says she gets up and she serves Jesus, which is such a fun detail. I mean, like you know, does she like make him dinner suddenly? I don't know. But, but I think the point is not just that she has this desire to help him, but it's now her dignity is restored. She can once again be the host. So we see these three... Beautiful miracles. And and as I think about it, if I had been there for any one of these, what I had seen would have stuck with me for the rest of my life. And yet, these are just three of Many. It, we're told at the very end of our passage that that evening, as people hear about what Jesus has been doing, it says people from all over bring the demon-possessed, bring the sick, and Jesus heals every single one of them. Can you imagine how much joy there would have been in that gathering as one person after another person after another person was freed of their infirmities and their sickness and their demon possession, and they were felt they felt whole for the first time, and who knows how long. That's that's what we see for Jesus. For three years, one one commentator says, for three years, Israel ended up going without any forms of suffering. That is, diseases were healed again and again and again by Jesus. And what I want us to to do now is, as we've seen this, to ask, what's going on here? You know, to ask kind of a what and a who and a why. What is Jesus doing? Who is Jesus doing this for and, and why? Because if you think about the what question, as as beautiful as these moments were, none of these things actually lasted. Anyone who was healed by Jesus would become sick again. Everyone who was healed by Jesus would eventually die. So why is Jesus doing this? If this is such a big part of his ministry, what is he accomplishing? Part of it, of course, is just his compassion, but there is something more. These, These... Miracles are are foretastes, they're pictures, they are signs that Jesus is giving of what he is doing by bringing the kingdom of heaven. So if you think about it, when Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is inviting people to do something very scary. He is saying, let go of the life that you have that you are so familiar with because your future is not there and come with me and I'm going to take you, I want to take you into a situation that you do not know, that you have never seen, and you're going to have to follow me into it. And I have to tell you, it's going to be good, but you're going to have to trust me. That's what it means to follow Jesus. I mean, Jesus says anyone who, who would follow me must deny himself, he must lose his life for my sake, he must take up his cross, and that's scary. Jesus knows that. And so there's a sense that every miracle Jesus is saying, I know you have a hard time seeing what I want to give you, so let me show you. Let let me show you what I am doing. Let me show you some pictures of the beautiful reality that I'm bringing when I'm talking about the kingdom of heaven. You know, I think we think of Jesus coming to save souls from hell, and that's true, that the very center of what Jesus is doing is him bringing us back to God. But these miracles are showing that when we think of this, we need to think way bigger than we normally think of. That that when Jesus is bringing about the kingdom of heaven, he is bringing about a reality where our bodies will no longer betray us where we no longer will find things happening to ourselves that just destroy us, that that give us shame. He's bringing about a reality when we will no longer, like that servant, just suffer and agonize. He's bringing about a reality when we will not be laid low by exhaustion, but we will be filled with energy and we will be whole. That's, That's what he's showing us with these miracles. And more than that, he's showing us not just about our physical well-being, but did you notice how he's consistently showing a a social wholeness? He is, when he's healing the leper, he is showing that there is a time that all will be welcome into his community. As he As he essentially invites the centurion to the feast in the future, he's talking of a day where there will no longer be any ethnic divisions between Jew or Gentile, between black or white, but there will be harmony within the community. And as as he heals this woman and gives her her dignity back, he is pointing to a reality when everyone will have a role, everyone will have a place Everyone will belong. Each miracle is, is like a signal flare that he's sending up into the sky so that as you look, you can see just the outline of the kingdom of heaven that he is walking to. He's saying, come with me. It is beautiful. And it is. That's what he's doing. These are living pictures of the reality that Jesus is accomplishing. So what about the who? Who is this for? Who do we see Jesus bringing this about for? And, and I ask that because I actually think Matthew, the three miracles he chooses in these opening 17 verses, he chooses very carefully because each of them have what seems like an almost insurmountable obstacle, keeping themselves from being made whole. The first one is someone who is unworthy sorry, who is unclean, and then the centurion is someone who is unworthy, and then the the, the mother-in-law is someone who is unable, unable to even ask, and yet what we see is each of these obstacles Jesus overcoming. He cleans the one who is unclean. He draws in the one who is unworthy, and he gives strength to the one who is unable And I think what Matthew is showing us is there is nothing that disqualifies, that can even disqualify people who are seeking help from Jesus. This is important because each of those things that I just described are true of us. We are, if we are honest with ourselves, we are unclean. Each of us carry somewhere in our minds and our hearts a kind of shame, an awareness of things that we've done, an awareness of who we are that we don't want anyone to see because we ourselves hate it. And here's the truth. Jesus sees that. But rather than turning his head from us in disgust, he draws near to us and loves us. We are unworthy. There is nothing that we have where we can have any claim to the king of the universe asking for his help, and yet Jesus says to us, come to the table, to the feast, and join with me. We are unable, unable to make ourselves more loving. Haven't you felt that sometimes, this awareness of your selfishness or of your short temper or your lack of discipline, and you've wanted to do something, but you realize you can't? We are unable. Sometimes we're unable even to ask, and yet Jesus comes and he gives us strength and makes us alive. There is nothing that can disqualify us if we want help from Jesus from getting that help. There is only one thing really in Matthew that consistently is the obstacle that stands in the way. And that is when people are unwilling to recognize their need for help. When you see people in Matthew who are wanting to maintain this appearance of control, who wants to pretend that they're independent, people who who basically are saying to Jesus emotionally, not actually with their words, no thanks, I've got this, I'll be fine. As long as there is this sense of I don't need help, then people are keeping themselves from the kind of help that Jesus can bring as he is building his kingdom. But for everyone, no matter how far away it seems they are, for everyone who recognizes that they need and turn to Jesus with that need, Jesus comes and helps. So we see the what? These signs of the beautiful kingdom. We see the who, anyone who has need. And what I want to conclude with is the why. Why does does Jesus even do this? Which maybe seems like a strange question. I think if it does seem strange to us, it's because sometimes I think we have a misunderstanding of the way that Jesus does miracles. Sometimes I think we can think of him almost as like this magician with a wand, like you get healed, you get healed, you get healed, as if it's like no effort at all, and it's just an easy thing that costs him nothing. But Matthew actually, at the very end of our passage, tells us that that isn't what's taking place. Did you notice this? It says, when he is doing these things, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. Do you hear that language? He bore our diseases. In other words, it didn't cost him nothing. Whenever he healed, there was a sense that he was carrying So, this is a quote, when Matthew is quoting here from Isaiah, maybe these words are familiar to you. It's from Isaiah 53, where you have this description of this great servant, this suffering servant who brings salvation, And, and the larger passage says, surely, surely he took up our sicknesses and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Everything Jesus is doing in these signs of the kingdom is about peace, is about restoration, is about wholeness. And here Isaiah is saying, for that peace to take place, someone had to experience punishment. Do you see how it ends where it says, by his wounds we are healed? The wounds, the suffering, they didn't go away. They were transferred to Jesus. There's a real sense that when Jesus is healing every single person, he's not just, you know, waving a magic wand. What he is doing is he's saying, your burden looks really heavy. Let me carry it for you. When Jesus goes to the cross, he carries the curse that is upon us. He carries all of our shame. He carries all of our sin. He carries all of our weakness. And he brings it to the cross to bring it to an end that we might be free of it. He bore our sufferings. It cost him. And so I ask the question again, why does he do this? Why is he doing this for these three people and for, for all of us? And and there's just one answer, and it's simple, but it is clear. It's the one that comes at the very beginning of our passage, where the leper falls down and says, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus, what does he say? I am willing. I want to. It's essentially what he was saying when he tells the centurion, go, your servant is well. I am willing. When he heals by touching the hand of the woman, he's saying, I am willing. I I want to make things right. I am willing. And the reason is because he loves me and he loves you. Elsewhere in Romans, we're told that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He does this because he loves us. There is no other reason. So as I... As we conclude, I want to just leave us as we're reflecting on these miracles with just two very brief applications. The first is that if, if you can see what Jesus is doing with these miracles, what he is showing about why he has come and who he has come for, there's only one right response, and that is for each of us to come to Jesus for help. For some of you, maybe this will be the very first time if you do this where you will be doing this, where where you stop the pretense that you have things under control, you stop the, the defensiveness, and just before Jesus, you acknowledge, Jesus, I can't do this. Jesus, I am not worthy. Jesus, I need your help. For some of us, this is something that we do if we are understanding things rightly every day. This is the very foundation of the Christian life. And and it's a scary thing, isn't it? Because to truly come to Jesus looking for help involves a kind of surrender, a surrender of control, a surrender of independence. It is to let someone else be the one who is running our life. But here's the reason why it makes so much sense to do this. Because Jesus, if you see these miracles rightly, Jesus is far more committed to your well-being than you are. Just think about the number of decisions that you make, that I make, that are self-destructive. And think about what Jesus does, the decisions he makes that are so costly, all for our healing. This This morning, if you understand, if you can see his love, if you can see what he does, the the only right response is to come to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, please help me and know that he is willing. And secondly, if, if you, like me, are, are seeking to follow Jesus faithfully as his apprentice, then, then here's the reality of being an apprentice. It means looking at our leader and seeking to be like him. What do we see in Jesus? We see someone who, when he sees what is sinful, when he sees what is bad, he doesn't turn away, but he moves towards it and and when he draws near he says let me take that burden upon my shoulders and as his apprentices we are called to follow let me ask you what does it look like for you as you look at your neighbors as you look at your coworkers as you look at family what does it look like rather than to turn away from those things that are hard or problematic but to move towards and to say how can I take some of this on my shoulders because that's what it looks like to follow Jesus What I'd like to do right now is uh, as we do every week uh, When we have this time for confession, there is a really simple reason for It It is because it is the way that we ask Jesus for help. It is owning our weakness. It is owning all of our problems and saying, Lord Jesus, you, if you are willing, can clean me of this, knowing that he is willing. So let me invite you, wherever you are right now, with your heart and your mind, to come to Jesus, to acknowledge your feelings, and to ask for help. And then I will lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time. So let's spend some time in in quiet confession of sins.